Our text today comes from Matthew chapter 25 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Hear now God's holy word. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out and meet him. And all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And when they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and by the same spirit who filled our Savior Jesus, we ask you now to shine your light into our hearts. Fill us by that same spirit to be led into truth. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Both of my parents worked outside of the home for much of my childhood, and each morning before leaving for work, my mother would leave a list of chores for my sister and me to complete before she and my father got home at the end of the day. And it was common stuff. Do the dishes, do the laundry, clean your room, sweep, vacuum, dust, make your beds, that that sort of thing. And the deadline to get this short list of chores done was by the time mom and dad get home, which happened nearly the same time every day. During the school year, there was ample time to get these things done between the time we got off the bus and the time my parents returned home from work. During the summer and other breaks in the school year, we had all day to get all of these things done. And yet every day in every season, and I can't think of a single exception to this, we habitually waited until the very last minute to get started. There was always one more cartoon, one more cartoon, one more Atari game, you know, one more thing. And every day in every season, we would wait till the last minute and then run around in a frantic commotion, hoping for extra time, hoping that dad would get held up at work or help, hoping that mom would hit traffic, trying to get everything done before one of my parents got home, which we routinely failed to do. I remember clearly hearing the car pull up many times as we were in the middle of a half-finished mess and there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And many of you can probably relate to that. And you've probably also been in a workplace where there's a culture of cutting corners, leaving important things undone, putting off important detail work until the district manager shows up, until the health inspector arrives, until you find out that the boss or the owner is going to pop in. And then there's this mad scramble to bring everything up to the standard. This, this crazy, hectic mess of getting everything to meet expectations. Here's a little trick. Here's a little tip. Call it a life hack that I wish I had known when I was younger. That the way to never have to scramble when you know that an authority is coming, 
The way to avoid that is to live and work constantly in such a way that you would never be ashamed of the boss showing up at any time. You would never be afraid for mom or dad or the owner to show up. Whether they announce their arrival or whether it is a surprise, they're going to find the same diligence and the same standards being kept. At the end of his teaching on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gives his disciples a series of parables, which all share the same story elements. They're all heavy with expectation. In each of these parables, there are people waiting on someone great and important to arrive. And the focus is on how the various servants or attendants respond to their master's delay. There are those who use the master's delay to be lazy as an excuse to, to slack off. And there are those who are diligent. The first of these parables comes at the end of chapter 24, which we read last week. That parable features two servants, a faithful wise servant and an evil servant who are left in charge of a master's house. And Jesus said, blessed is that servant who is found faithfully doing what he is told to do when the master comes. But then Jesus also tells of an evil servant who takes advantage of the master's delay and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. Then the master arrives on a day when he's not expected, on a day when no one's looking for him. And at an hour no one is aware of, the master comes and Jesus says that evil servant is cut in two. I don't know how long it takes to recover from an injury like that, but he is left outside of whatever joy and blessing is left. There's no patience. There's no mercy. It's all over when the day of judgment arrives. That same theme now is carried over into these next two parables in chapter 25. Parables we've heard many, many times. And I would dare say that the majority of times that we've heard and read these parables and the majority of the times we've, we've thought about them, it's outside of the context of the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples on that day. We have this tendency to pull these things up out of the text and treat them like these little timeless nuggets of wisdom that don't need the surrounding context to understand them. But that, that's not helpful. Uh, these parables are the application of Jesus' teaching in chapter 24. And I would say that they're inseparable from his instruction in chapter 24. So let's quickly remember what is the topic of the conversation. Jesus and his disciples, as Jesus teaches these things, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, a hill outside the city of Jerusalem, looking down into the city, looking straight into the courtyard of the temple. As they're there, Jesus has already stated that this whole thing is coming down. Not one stone will be left upon another. And the disciples ask the question that you or I would ask. When? When is this going to happen? What is the timing? Is there going to be a sign of this? And Jesus answers their question. It will happen in this generation, and he gives them things to look for, signs to know that it is getting near. And indeed, within 40 years, judgment is coming against this old world of the old covenant. Jesus is coming in judgment is going to look like a Roman army besieging and dismantling the city of Jerusalem. Some will be taken. Some will be left. The people who delivered up the Son of God to be crucified. That generation who, who delivered him up, that generation who betrayed him, will be destroyed. 
And Jesus says, the lights are gonna go out on Jerusalem. The clocks are gonna stop. And when the temple is demolished, you will know, Jesus says, you will know that I am a faithful and true prophet. When all this happens, you will know that I am reigning from heaven when my words are fulfilled. Well, after all of this, then Jesus gives a number of parables which illustrate what faithfulness will look like for the church in this intervening time. These are kingdom parables. And so these are directed to the believers. This is directed to disciples. Jesus is going away. He's going to ascend to his father's right hand. And there's going to be a period of waiting between his ascension and the coming day of wrath. So he tells his disciples, this is how I expect you to behave. This is what faithfulness looks like during this intervening time. The first parable in chapter 25 is the parable of 10 virgins who are staying up all night to greet a bridegroom. Five are wives. They've prepared for all contingencies. They brought enough oil for their lamps to burn all night. Five are foolish. They take their lamp and the oil that's in it, but they don't bring any extra oil. They all fall asleep while the bridegroom is delayed. And at midnight, the cry goes out. The bridegroom is coming. They arise to light their lamps. Uh-oh, the foolish ones complain. Uh, they don't have enough oil. And they ask the others, hey, could you loan me some? Could you share some with me? And the wise ones say, no, if we do that, then we won't have enough. And all of our lamps will go out. You go and you try to buy some somewhere. And when the five foolish leave, the bridegroom arrives, the party starts, and the five foolish are shut out. And despite their complaints, they're not admitted to the party. This scene sounds very foreign to us because this doesn't look anything like our modern wedding customs. As best I understand, the ancient Eastern custom of weddings was that a man and woman would be betrothed. They would be promised to marry each other the way that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. They're betrothed for up to a year while the groom would go prepare a place for his bride. He would go fix up a house, or he'd go build a house, or he'd go add on to his father's house. He would make a place for her and get everything ready for her to move in. And when that place was ready, then he would go to her father's house to get her. And when he goes, there would be a small ceremony right there and then, and a small family party, which would go as late as it went. I mean, there was no time on that. There was no clock on that. You just, you just go until it goes, until you're done. And then when that family party is over, then the groom and his bride would process to his house or to his father's house, wherever they're holding the wedding feast. So the groom would take his bride to the place of the party, and there there would be a seven-day marriage feast at the, at the place where the party is. So the bridal party the attendants to the bride, her friends would wait along the road, the road, the path that they know that they would be taking from the girl's house to the groom's house. And they would wait along the road so that they could rejoice with them, so that they could receive them when they come. And they would make up the procession. They'd make up the entourage that would enter the wedding feast. You gotta be with the bride and you gotta be with the groom to get into the party. If you're not part of the procession, you try to crash the party later, somebody might say, who are you? Why weren't you with the bride and groom? All their friends are with the bride and groom. You don't belong here. You're not ready. You, we, don't, we don't know you. So it's imperative to stay up and wait and, and be prepared to wait as long as is necessary into the night because you don't know how long the family ceremony is gonna last. 
be ready to join the procession. As best I understand, that was the ancient custom that Jesus is referring to. So Jesus tells his disciples that faithful waiting for his coming is going to look like the waiting of the five wise virgins. He purposely uses this imagery of a wedding because he's the mighty bridegroom and the church is his bride. His going away at the ascension is for the purpose of preparing a place for his bride. His actions against Jerusalem, his actions against the temple and that whole world of Judaism is in defense of his bride. His coming again at the end of history will be to bring his bride into the fullness of the new heavens and new earth to dwell with him and commune with him forever. The young women then in this parable are those who are in the company of the bride, who are in the friendship of the bride, the church. There's also a rich symbolic history in the Bible uh, of regarding oil and lamps. Oil and lamps are, are all, all over the place. There are 10 virgins holding lamps in this story. There are 10 lampstands in this temple, in the temple sanctuary. In Exodus chapter 27, God commands Israel to provide oil for the lamps in the sanctuary to uh, make sure, to ensure that those lamps never go out. That, that's a very critical thing, that the lamps in the temple sanctuary are always burning. And so it's up to the people. It's the people's job to make sure there's oil for the lamps. So it's as if in this parable, the 10 lampstands, the, the light of God's glory, the light of knowledge and discernment and wisdom is brought out of the sanctuary into the public. And of course, that's going to happen at the crucifixion. Remember the veil, the temple veil is torn and God's light and, and the light of God's nearness and fellowship is going to flood out of the temple. God's nearness is no longer shrouded inside the temple. Now, uh, Jesus says to his people, you are the light of the world. Uh, the, the heads of the apostles are aflame on the day of Pentecost. You open the book of Revelation, you find the churches are lampstands shining the light out. The churches are candles. The lights of the churches will shine into the dark world, even as the light of the nations is snuffed out. Their sun and moon and stars are all snuffed out, but the light of the church continues. The lamp of the church will shine so long as they have the oil of the spirit. Oil, again, it's, it's everywhere in the scriptures, right? Oil is liquid light. It, it shines, it shimmers, it's, it's burned for illumination. Oil is also used for healing. It's used for cleansing. It's used for anointing the priest and the and the king. So it makes sense that God's Holy Spirit is often associated with the flame and with the oil that produces the flame. We are lamps. We, you and I, are lamps that are vessels for the oil of God's Spirit. The extent to which we are able to shine with God's light is the extent to which we are filled with God's Spirit. We have the oil of God's Spirit and the flame of His Spirit on our heads. All of this rests in the background. All this is in the background of this parable. Notice that the virgins in the story are not simply good or bad. They're, they're not simply righteous or wicked. They're wise and foolish. They're prepared and not, a, not prepared. So there will be people, Jesus is saying, who are ready for the judgment to come. They're ready for the coming of the Son of Man 
in judgment. They've heard Jesus. They've, they've made preparation. And they're willing to wait patiently no matter how long it takes. And there are those who will get tired of waiting. There are those who will slack off. And the day of the Lord will come to them as a horrible surprise. Being prepared for what is coming is going to require faithfulness and steadiness, knowing what is coming and making preparation for it. Jesus has told them. He's been pretty clear about what is coming. He has not told them when it is coming. He's given them signs to look for, but he's not given them a day, a month, and a year for when he will return in judgment against this city. So what does that mean? It means you've always got to be ready. Always ready. And that means keep your lamp prepared. Keep your lamp ready to burn. And that means tending to the life of God's spirit within you. Don't, don't quench the spirit. Don't grieve the spirit by sin. Be animated by God's spirit and the power of his Holy Spirit. Be energized by the spirit to obey God. And as Paul says in Ephesians, be full of the spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Keep the flame of the spirit by returning continually to the replenishing oil of the word and sacraments. Because when the moment of truth comes for these 10 virgins, it is joyful for the wise, it is painful for the unprepared and the unwise. There's a cry at midnight. There's a door that is shut. What does that remind us of? Well, it reminds us of Passover, right? This is a deliverance in the middle of the night for those who have made preparation. But there's terrible judgment on those who have not been prepared and are not faithful. The doorkeeper in this parable, the doorkeeper says to those unprepared girls, he says, I don't know you. Uh, that sounds a lot like Jesus' verdict on the day of judgment against the disobedient and false teachers. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of, of iniquity. This warning is clear in this parable. The warning is clear for anybody who has ears to hear it, that those who are going to be blessed by the coming of the Son of Man in judgment, those who will be blessed by the entrance of the new world and the undoing of the old world will be those who are ready, who are paying attention with Jesus and his bride, who are tuned in to these heavenly realities that he has just, has just detailed for them. Not the ones, the ones who are left out, the ones who are not ready are the ones who are going to ignore his warnings. The ones whose mind flit from wars to rumors of wars and the, and the worries about those. The ones who are wrapped up in every conspiracy about this earthquake or that disaster. The ones who jump on every new resistance movement, who are breathlessly following every Messiah, looking, uh, every, every false Messiah, looking for these, these appearances of Jesus. Oh, he's in the desert. Oh, he's in the inner rooms. They grow distracted and they grow burnt out by every false pursuit and every false hope. Those are the foolish ones. The wise ones wait in stability and confidence, laboring diligently, keeping the oil of the Spirit burning, the light of the Spirit shining. After this parable, uh, Jesus delivers one of his most well-known parables. And if I asked you to tell it to me, you could probably tell it to me uh, without leaving out any details. But let's go ahead and read uh, and listen to the next parable beginning in verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. 
And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done. Good and faithful servant, you are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We get our word talent, meaning skill or ability. Our English word talent comes from this parable, which shows how deeply connected this parable is to its most common application. The, the most common reading of this parable is the Lord has given us all various giftings and we're to put them to good use and not hide them. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's fine, that's true, but that's not all that this parable is about. We think about talents as being something that God has just put in our genetic code, right? That, that we're just naturally talented technically or musically or athletically. But in the parable, notice that the Lord gives his servants treasures according to their ability. They have already demonstrated some expertise. They've always already shown some usefulness to the master. And the more competent they are, the more they're given to manage. One servant is given five talents, one servant is given two, and one servant is given one. A talent is not a coin. A talent is a weight of gold or silver. So even one talent is an immense treasure. It's, it's more than a common man would make in his lifetime. It could be as much as $2 million in our, in our modern uh, currency. Talents in the Bible are used to measure the wealth of kings. The talents are used to measure the wealth of nations in, in the Bible. So don't feel bad for the man who was only given one talent. That's an extraordinary amount of, of riches and it, it displays a high degree of trust that the ruler put in the man that just has one. The ruler goes away for a long time, uh, Jesus says. He's put a, an enormous treasure in the hands of his servants, and he expects them to show something for his investment when he returns. His time away is long enough for the investments to double in size. When the day comes for, for the servants to give an account, the faithfulness of the servants is revealed. 
The man who received five doubled his investment and now has 10. The man who received two also doubled his investment and now has four. Both men are praised by the ruler. Both men are given even greater responsibility. They have done exactly what the master required of them. They have taken his treasure and they have put it to good use. They put it to work, even put it to risk if necessary uh, to, uh, to get it out there and make the money to make the, the treasure work. The third man who received one talent is not concerned with putting the wealth to work. He's only concerned, his number one concern is not losing what was given to him. The others, they risk their allotment and they, they have a greater amount to risk. They could potentially lose more uh, by, by, by putting it out there. Their loss could have been greater. But this one, he hoards the treasure he has. He, he, he wraps it in a, in a cloth and hides it in the ground. Why does he do this? Is, do we have any insight into his mentality? Well, one thing we see is that he has a warped view of the master. He thinks that the master has evil intentions toward him and everybody else. Uh, he, he thinks his, his master is, is not a kind of a kind father, but, but a, a Molech or a Baal or a false god, a harsh, impersonal slave driver. And he accuses his master of this when he's caught on the day of judgment. He accuses him as, you are a hard man. You reap where you do not sow and, and, and you gather where you do not scatter. Now, if the master in this parable represents the Lord God, that's a false accusation, right? It, God has scattered seed everywhere. God, God has sown everywhere. There's nowhere in creation that God has not planted and watered and where God's uh, uh, son has shone on on his creation, and therefore, God has a right to expect a harvest from anywhere, and God has the privilege to reap whatever he wants to reap. So two things prove that this is a silly accusation. This accusation does not hold water. One is that the other servants don't assume this about the ruler. They put the money to work, and, and you put it to work trusting that if it doesn't return a fabulous investment, they're gonna be judged for their faithfulness, not for their results. We're gonna be judged according to how faithful we were with what we were given. The master wanted us to put this to work and we're putting it to work. And we can't govern the, 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 the spirit of the market, the, 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 the return that we're gonna get. We, we just can't govern that. We can't control that, but we are gonna be faithful. We're gonna be faithful. And notice, notice also that the master says to both of them, enter into the joy of your Lord. He doesn't sound like a slave driver. He doesn't sound like a hard, harsh man. Uh, so that's the first thing is that the others don't see the master this way. And the second thing that exposes the lie about the harshness of the master is that if the third man had truly believed this, why didn't he work harder? If he truly believed that, that this master was a, was a slave driver, um, why did he do something with the money? And the master asked him this question. He says, if you thought I was a hard man, why are you so lazy? This doesn't make sense at all. So essentially, those who are like this third man uh, buy the lie that Satan told Eve. What did, what did Satan tell Eve, essentially? Eve, God does not have good intentions for you. God wants you to go without. God is depriving you. He wants to hold blessings back from you, so you can't trust him. God is evil. 
you need to be afraid of God. God is a hard taskmaster. God essentially is a monster. That's what Satan wants Eve to believe. And this is what this man believed about his master. And so instead of following the example of the other two fellow workers, instead of staying close by them where they could stimulate him to love and good works and, and encourage him to have faith and confidence that his money would have doubled, instead, he isolates himself and he isolates his treasure and he takes this cowardly, anxious position of passivity because he really didn't fear the judgment until it was too late. And then when he was caught and his failure was exposed, he pridefully levels this accusation against the master. That, that's what the unrepentant do, right? That's what the guilty do. Immediately when their sin is exposed, they start pointing fingers. That's what happens in the garden. That's what Adam does. That's what Eve does. And that's what he does. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you're, you're a hard man. And that wasn't the case at all. So what do these parables teach the disciples about how they are to wait in this intervening time? Jesus is going away on a long journey, and he's going to come back to inspect his church to assess how his servants have been doing with the treasures he has given them. In both of these parables, we see that the coming of the, of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord, is not just a time for him to judge apostate Israel, but it's a time of assessment of the church. It's a time of sifting of the church. The apostles heard this warning, and that's why all of the letters of the New Testament, there's this constant urging from Paul and Peter and James and John and Jude, that, that this, this, this constant tone, be faithful, be ready, watch, be diligent, don't fall away, don't be consumed by the cares of this world, because they know that this great cataclysm is just around the corner, and the only ones who are going to make it through intact are the ones who have separated themselves from the old world and who have divested themselves of the cares of this world. They don't have any entanglements in the world of unbelief. And They've been liberal with the treasures that their master has given them. They've, they've shared the word and the water and the bread and the wine. They've fed and clothed the refugees from the tyranny of Satan. These are the ones to whom the master will give even greater responsibility, who will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The, the, the ones that have coasted, the ones who have been lazy and wasteful, are going to lose even what they have. So while these parables were spoken in a specific time and place, these parables were given in a specific cultural context, we still hear and we still learn and we wisely apply these things to our own situation. Here's a good question. How do you live in a nation that is under judgment? And how do you live in a nation that's bound for even greater judgment if there's not any repentance or revival or reformation? What does faithfulness look like as we wait for the day of the Lord's deliverance and justice. What, what happens in this day? Well, these parables show us first what foolishness looks like. Foolishness looks like the five young women, they have a little oil, they've got what's in their lamps, and they assume that they're fine. They've got a little bit, they were fine. They assume that they don't need any more, and it's all going to work out somehow. It's, it's all, it's, it'll be good, it's fine. They're not ready. And instead of getting themselves ready, instead of putting themselves in order, they wait until the last minute to scramble around in a panic and then assume that everybody else is just going to cover for their lack of preparation, but it doesn't happen. And then it's too late. We could make several applications to this, but I just want to give you one thought of how uh, I, I think we can apply this. 
How often have you found yourself caught in a conversation with an unbeliever or with a scoffer or with even a, a, somebody who's espousing something heretical and you're putting, put in a position to defend the truth. You're defending the lordship of Jesus Christ or you're defending the authority of God's word and you're defending it and you put in this position but then you find out you really don't have enough knowledge of the scriptures or enough mastery of the Bible, or, or, or enough skill in applying the Bible. You just don't have enough that you're embarrassed by your ignorance, and you're, you're caught. You've got a little oil. You do. You do have a little oil, but you don't have enough for the moment of truth because you haven't, you haven't applied yourself. You haven't made any effort to get more oil. You just don't have to, any effort to add to what you have like the foolish virgins. Foolishness looks like that. Foolishness looks like, eh, I got a little bit, I'm fine, I'm good. It, 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 it'll, it'll work out, it'll be fine. Foolishness looks like the man who buries the treasure entrusted to him, puts it in the ground. He doesn't invest it because he doesn't think his investment is going to be blessed. He believes lies about the master, that his master only wishes to harm him and not do him good. This is like a, a very private Christian. You know these guys, right? Very, very private Christian. Yeah, he, he's a believer. He just doesn't make a big deal about it, right? He's just a private, private Christian. He has what he has, but it's buried deep, right? He doesn't add to it. He doesn't improve upon it. He doesn't put the gift of the Holy Spirit to work. He doesn't exercise his faith and confidence of the promises God made to him at his baptism. He's worried. If I risk letting people know that I'm a Christian, if I risk people knowing that I actually believe what God says, I believe the Bible, I believe what he says, there's only one outcome. That's gonna bring me harm. I'm gonna lose out. I'll lose out every time. I'll lose out if I let people know that about me. So I hide, I shrink back. I fear man more than God. You see, in both of these cases, in both of these parables, those who end up with only what they started off with are the ones on the outside looking in. I'm gonna say that again. In both of these parables, those who end up with only what they started off with are on the outside looking in. Those are the ones who are judged. Those are the ones who are foolish. They're exiled. The ones who faithfully add to what they are given, who put to work what they're given, receive the blessing and the pleasure of the master. So, child of God, you have been given an immense deposit of, of treasure. <laughs> you, have been giving, you have been given a great treasure of the Holy Spirit, of God's word, of the sacraments, of the fellowship of the saints. You have this great treasure. So what are we supposed to do with it? Spend it, use it, invest it so that it will be replenished and doubled. That's, counter, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? Maybe if I hold on to it, that'll be fine. No, 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 no. That's not how it works in God's economy. No, you spend it and it's replenished and it's doubled. We use this term all the time, how we spend our time. That's a transaction, isn't it? We're spending our time. We're investing our time in something and uh, I'm starting to feel like I've got less and less and less to spend. I feel like uh, time is running out. Minutes and days and months are just flying by around me. And I'm like, hold on, hold on, slow down to time. And it just keeps going faster. And I feel like there's less and less time to spend. I've got less time in my account. Uh, we, we think about it, but, but what that is, is the energy and the resources God has given me to invest. You pour yourself out, you give. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, I love you and therefore I will gladly spend and be spent for you. 
And that's, that's our perspective on our families and on each other, on the body of Christ, that we happily, we gladly spend and be spent. We don't hoard. We don't reserve. We spend and are spent. Because we know the Lord is near. We don't know the day, the month, the year when God is going to bring full judgment on our civilization. But we see the signs. We know that, that nations like this don't, don't go on forever without God's judgment. So what do we do? We imitate the wise virgins. We fill up on the oil of the Spirit. We are lampstands shining in the world. We keep our wicks trimmed and our oil supply full. We don't coast on our past experiences. You got a little oil? Great. Great. Go get more. Go get more. It's not enough. You got a talent? Fine. Great. Invest it. You need more. And so you come week by week to renew fellowship with God and to ask for the fullness of his spirit. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, your heavenly father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him. We need his power. We need his conviction, his comfort, his encouragement. So pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Pray for God's spirit uh, to to come and, and give you strength and comfort. We imitate the faithful servants. To invest our treasure means taking what he has given us and put it to work. You may be tempted to think, well, if the world is ending, maybe it's time to hoard. Maybe it's time to to hold on. It's not the time to invest if the world is ending. But spend is exactly what God is encouraging his disciples to do. Obtain the oil when you can so that you can burn it when you need it. Put your treasure to work. Cast your bread upon the waters. And we see the church doing just that, right? In the early chapters of of Acts, what are they doing? They're selling their land and they're giving the proceeds to the kingdom. They're investing the proceeds in the kingdom. That's how they apply Jesus' teaching. The way that Jesus kept his promise to come in judgment then is the sign that he's reigning from heaven now. He is the mighty bridegroom who protects and defends his bride and he's going to come back for her at the end of history. He is the master who has given his servants great treasure for them to invest and he will call for an accounting at the final judgment. Don't take any of this lightly. Don't let this go in one ear and out the other. Don't don't coast. Don't be slothful. Be diligent now with the time and the resources and opportunities God has given you because there will come a time where time's up. It's too late. It's too late. Time's up. Either death or judgment will come on us at an unexpected time, on an unexpected day. Don't, child of God, don't be on the outside looking in. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word and for our Savior Jesus. We pray indeed that you would fill us all with your spirit so that we might shine as lights in this dark and cruel and ignorant and evil world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.